So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. You may have noticed that lately politics have gotten a little contentious. Across the country, this has led to a focus on the need for quality civic education, geared toward preparing our students with the skills they need to be active participants in a democracy, and who are able to access and insert themselves into the democratic decision-making process. Today, we talk with a leader in that nationwide push to make civic education better and more meaningful for our students. Hi, well, my name is Mary Ellen Daniels, and after 27 years in the classroom at West Chicago Community High School, I've been on a leave of absence the last two years going into my third year to serve as the lead teacher mentor for the Robert R. McCormick Foundation. And what I do in that work is I travel around the state of Illinois to help um, stakeholders, whether it be educators, pre-service teachers, administrators, um, implement new social studies standards that are framed around inquiry that leads to informed action, and also a new high school uh, civics mandate that was passed a few years ago, uh, which really doesn't, that goes beyond the constitution test and goes beyond just what students should be learning about civics, but also how they should be learning about it. So embedding the proven practices of civic education um, throughout the experience. So that's a little bit of my work right now. Um, through the work that I've been doing with McCormick and through our 38 regional mentors around the state, we've reached over 10,000 teachers in the last few years in our state uh, to, to support this work. So that's a little bit about who I am and what I do. Um, I'm really excited because um, I ran into you for the first time when we were doing an inquiry panel in, in Park Ridge recently, but um, I had known of your work about civics and I really wanted a chance to talk about it at the time, but it just kind of never came up. That wasn't what the night was about. So uh, I'm really glad to finally be able to sit down with you and have a conversation about this because I know you're, you're as passionate about it as I am. So, but, but before we start, like our, our defining question for uh, this podcast is just, what have you been thinking about in education lately? So I've been thinking about a couple of things, really on the micro level, um, as far as my immediate work plan, there is a bill called House Bill 2265 that with bipartisan support passed through the Illinois General Assembly that requires a semester of civics at the middle school level. Awesome. It's awesome. Um, and um, again, that bill isn't just what you teach, but how you teach it. So it requires that teachers engage students in um, direct instruction on democratic institutions so they know the systems of power and how to navigate them, right. but also uh, that they engage in current and societal issue discussions, they engage in simulations of democratic processes, and also they engage in service learning or informed action projects. So right now, that, that bill is sitting on the governor's desk awaiting his signature. Feel free to a shout out to J.B. Pritzker in Illinois to encourage him to sign that. Um, it's looking good. Um, but my my real thoughts this right now are how do I best support stakeholders, whether that be students, teachers, administrators, parents, pre-service professors, civic providers, and helping teachers implement that bill with fidelity. So that on a micro level is what I'm thinking about. Right. On a more macro level, um, I've been invited to be a keynote speaker at the New Hampshire uh Institute for Civic Education this fall. And they asked me for the title of my keynote address. And the title I gave them was The Opportunity Cost of the Other. Have I written this keynote yet? I have not. <laughs> That's how keynotes go, though. You give right, right, them a right. promise and then you build underneath it. Right. Yeah. So really thinking about 
really this troubling sort of um, thing that I think all of us are seeing in our communities of the othering or dehumanizing of people Mm -hmm. that we disagree with. And, you know, somehow how the fear results in the othering of of people that we don't understand from different experiences or traditions or political ideologies. And so I'm sort of gathering resources to sort of create that keynote that I think will probably turn into a blog post that might turn into an article that I write. Right. So gathering resources about, you know, sort of the role of dialogue plays in doing that. Um, how, the role of questioning and inquiry, you know, yeah. plays in sort of ending that enemy of the other. And then also really tapping into students' lived experiences and giving them right. a space to share those lived experiences and have that dialogue across some of their deepest differences. And, and I guess more importantly, Sean, a lot of teachers are asking, you know, are wanting to do this work. Um, and how do we do this work, not only across differences in schools, but what if we're in a school that's very homogenous? Yeah. How do we expose students? That can be a bigger challenge. How do you yeah, bring yeah. up a voice, right? So how, how that might look as well. So I've been thinking about that. I have until mid-October to gather my thoughts together. Yeah. But um, that's on a bigger level. That's what I'm thinking about when I do my two mile power walk in the morning and when I'm commuting and whatever it is, is sort of that's rumbling around in my brain. <laughs> as, as often happens on this podcast, when we start talking and we, people start talking about their passions, I have a list of questions that I want to ask you today, but I think we could pretty much throw them away and I could just go off on the topics that you discussed right there. <laughs> so I, I love your talk about the othering because, and, and how that creates, like, what about a homogenous school? How do you bring up a polar opposite idea that isn't in line with what the students believe in a way that teachers and parents will value but you're basically challenging some of the community values to try right. to open their mind. And I think it's important. Like we have to have, we have to feel safe and protected in bringing up that, that comparison of values, regardless of the situation that we're in and how you do it. You know, like I'm really good at, I, I think I'm really good at helping teachers um, to see how to bring other voices in and how to address challenging and controversial issues when you have a divided populace, right? Which is kind of contrary to what your thinking is, right? Right. Um, you just encourage kids to bring in their ideas. You take all of your content from what the students and their parents bring in. Invite parents into your classroom. It gets very easy. But when you have that polar place where there's one idea, you know, I, it comes, I, I can't remember who said this, but there's nothing more dangerous than just having one idea. Yeah. Right? So I, I think that that's really good too. We, um, I just did, a, I presented out at a MassQ event in Massachusetts and we did a workshop in Vermont on civic education along these things. And um, so a couple of things. One, New Hampshire and Vermont are very serious about their civics. So I'm really excited yeah. for you to go out there and give that presentation. But um, also two, what I love about the bill that you mentioned, you're talking about House Bill 2265 about middle school, is that if you read about like what are the driving forces behind good quality civic education, there's certain, there's certain documents that I think I'm just going to go ahead and mention them now. Um, the Civic Mission of Schools is a publication from 2003 from the Carnegie Corporation. And if you're a civics teacher and you want to come back after this discussion, uh, I can try and put it on our website once we get this up and uh, published. But the Civic Mission of Schools was the beginning. And it talks about the basically the proven practices of civic education, those six right. proven practices, right? And then there was a follow-up in 2011, which is the Guardians of Democracy, the Civic Missions of Schools. And that one is also a fantastically amazing publication that goes further into depth to what works. Um, And then from there, there's another one that I really like. Have you ever seen Guidebook, Six Proven Practices for Civic Education? Yep. 
Okay, that one's fantastic because of the, the examples that it provides. Right. Right, and connects you to the resources. If people are doing work on it, it's there. Um, right, and, and there's another follow-up that came out last year. Right. Maybe you're mentioning it's the white paper. Uh, the Republic is still at risk. Yep, there yeah. it is. Anytime yeah. I talk to civics teachers and they know of these documents, I want to clap my hands and be all excited because the Republic is still at risk is fantastic. And um, it adds four additional practices that are right. very, very powerful. And there's some overlap in the way that they work, but I still love, um, they added like, for example, action civics, which I think is more specific than service learning. Service right. learning, people see, I think there's an old school approach to service learning that's like, have the kids go to the home for uh, local senior citizens and serve them, right? And right. some people see that as service learning, but action civics is engaging in the civic process, like get involved in democratic processes. You don't have to vote to be involved in them. Yeah, so. and, and and just to sort of build on that, um, yeah. I, I'll, I'll just bring this up right now because it seems like it's a good place to do Go that. One of the projects I'm working on right now with the Florida Joint Center on Citizenship, and this will go live in the fall, is we're creating a micro-credentialing or badging oh, program that will be free to teachers across the nation in uh, the proven practices of civic education. Oh, that's great. And so our first one is on current and controversial issue discussions. And in it, we interview people like Diana Hess, Paula McAvoy, Kay Kawashima Ginsburg, um, and really take you know teachers through like what it is, how you do it, um, and then also common stumbling blocks, and then how to create that plan of action with resources and such. And then we'll be doing one on informed action or service right. learning where we've talked to Joe Kahn out from, uh, out in California, the center, um, I'm sorry, the civic engagement research group. Yep. Yep. Um, and Jessica Marshall, who led a great initiative in CPS around service learning and civic engagement. And then our final one will be on simulations of democratic processes. And we interview people like Walter Parker and Jane Lowe. Um, so we're really excited about this. That will be free that teachers can access right. and enhance their practice, but then also to become certified to be instructional coaches themselves, because there's only one of you, Sean, there's only one of me. Right. So how can we empower teachers to do this in their classrooms and also coach others? And, and I have to say like what you're, the, the resources that are available, it's kind of unprecedented in my opinion, to have so many focused on such specific instructional practices, which I think is really, really hopeful. A lot of times when you're a teacher, they, they give you some broad challenge like here's this call to action do this thing and the resources aren't there so i'm kind of glad that we talked about these publications and you were able to share those resources because getting the the very good resources to the teachers who are called upon and and especially when you're talking about a law that's specific about instructional practices like getting those resources is really important to getting the follow-through so i'm going to throw in here now that we uh, my friend tom driscoll and i this was like our passion project for work. We get, we're, we're blessed by having a boss who tells us you've got to follow your passions or um, this doesn't work out. So we have a page that's called the Modern Civics Project. And we just try to write, publicize good resources, um, put up links to just connecting people with these resources. If you're a teacher in civic education or if you're an administrator who's looking to do these things, um, there's a lot out there. And definitely the McCormick's Foundation is a great beginning place um, but there are the, the publications that are out there too are, are a good place to start reading to kind of get your focus and your, your compass direction. Can I mention one more resource yeah. that a lot of people don't know about that was published um, about a year ago? And maybe yeah. you know about it, but I think it's really important based on our initial conversation about yeah. the other. 
is recently there was a report put out by Kathy Cohen of Castle and Joe Kahn, again from CERG and Jesse Marshall, and it's called Let's Go There, Making a Case for Race, Ethnicity, and a Lived Civics Approach to Civic Education. Oh, like- really head on. I mean, look at the title, Let's Go There, yeah. right? So <laughs> that is a really great resource for educators who are really mindful of thinking about like, what are the implicit messages we're sending about bias and identity and power in our classrooms? And, and, and also this really delves into the fact that, um, you know, in the past, there's been a lot of language around a civic empowerment gap, especially for students of color and such. Um, But some people are challenging that language in that, while many some many of these students from maybe low SES populations or whatever it may be may not have traditional civic education, they right. have some lived experiences that right. give them exposure to institutions of power that other students, you know, in the classroom may not have. They have these lived experiences with maybe um, immigration and naturalization services or with the right. police or whatever it may be. And so how can we really honor and tap into those lived experiences and bring them into the classroom to inform what we do? Right. And, and yeah. make, so that report really talks about that. That's, that's a great resource. And I'll take, make sure to add that to our resources list too. I think what you're saying is really important. You know, um, jumping ahead, there's the, the script is gone now because now we're yeah, just talking like about all these notes I've taken. It's <laughs> just whatever. So, um, but I think that it's what, what we, what I really want as a person, what I want for my son is I want my kids, my students, I want like just general kids in the population to know that in a democracy, you possess power, right? You are empowered to act and influence the democratic process. And what I want them to be able to do is to be able to access the mechanisms of democracy. There's a decision-making process in our country that involves us. And if we can get them to access that decision-making process, but even more, to envision that democratic process as something that they can be a part of. And if they leave school knowing that, then we've really done a really, we've been successful in what we do. And that's going to look very different. Like you said, you have an experience with immigration and naturalization services. Then let's build upon that thing that you know and validate and respect it. And if you live in a different community, at the last school that I was at, the city reached out to us about some, um, some projects that they were doing downtown, some rebuilding. And the kids, when they were presented by the city planners, said, you don't have bike racks. We can't ride our bikes there. And what about kids who carry skateboards? Like, is it going to be open to us or is it going to like vote us out? Like by not having bike racks, by not having places that we can put our things, you're basically voting us out of this plan. And the city responded to that. And I thought that was an incredible example of a small way where we can engage in a democratic process as teachers by saying, let's bring these people in. Let's let them present to our students as meaningful members of the community. They can't vote yet, but they're meaningful members of the community. And I think little steps like that are like getting us down the way to having kids who leave high school saying, this is my country and my decision-making process, and I'm going to inject myself into it. Yeah, I mean, if I could just build on that a little bit. When I do my workshops with teachers, this seems to be an analogy that really resonates with them. And I wrote an article to this effect, if it's of interest. Yeah. Um, and it's this idea of taking kids be, beyond being just thermometers to thermostats. Right. And this is the idea that, you know, in my classroom, I feel like for many years using essential questions, I really help kids sort of take the temperature of issues from the past into the present. So maybe we look at the civil rights movement in the past and right. I get the kids emotionally engaged and we bring it into the present, look at issues of injustice and, uh, you know, like, right. look at this injustice or 
maybe the role of women and let's bring it into the present and, uh, you know, or access right. to education, whatever it may be. Um, and I would do that and I'd help the kids take the temperature past to present. And then I'd take the test. Right. You know, they, they would take the test. And I mean, just to call myself out, I was really troubled because what I was really doing was creating a cohort of cynics mm -hmm. that point out the problems in society, but I wasn't giving them any agency like you did with your students to change. Right. And so I think what this legislation at the high school and at the middle school level do, and even the new standards in the state of Illinois for social studies do, is it really pushes classrooms to go beyond kids just being the thermometer that in their summative assessment answer the yeah. essential question and point out issues, but help them be the thermostat that can change the temperature, right? Right, right. So I think that that is really important, and I'm, I'm really encouraged seeing some of that happening throughout the state like you are with teachers that I've worked with that have really yeah. captured it and made it work for their communities. Because that might look different in a rural community than it does in a suburban community than looks in you right. know, a city community. So that's so, really exciting work. I think there's two things from what you just said that really um, like fired off a reaction in me. The first one is the cynicism. You know, I think in critical thinking skills, we make a critical error. We don't want kids to question and doubt everything. If we teach our kids to doubt everything, when we're teaching them digital citizenship skills, really we're creating cynics who can't believe in anything, right? right? At some point, they have to accept, acknowledge, and believe in something, right? And we as teachers have to support that that might not be the thing that we believe in, but we have to allow them to not be cynics. So it, it can't just be critical thinking where we're critical of everything because that's cynicism, right? We have to allow them to build. And I, that's where I think... Um, a, a kind of an on-ramp into this topic for me was when I was doing projects with kids and I, it was a passion project for them. They choose their topic and all throughout the semester of civic education that we had, they got to frame the lessons and activities we were doing back into their project. And so instead of having a quiz, we gave them time to say, how does this apply to the topic that you believe in with all your heart? And we had, I would have kids doing songs, podcasts, movies on topics from pro-life to pro-choice and I was really proud of the fact that we could have kids with completely opposing views sharing their projects at the end and clapping for each other because of how they structured it. But like, it gives them a chance to focus on civics in a way that is what they believe that I think took some of that cynical edge out. And, and like you said, that's the second point that I wanted to bring up. Um, judging ourselves in our own practice in a way where we're not saying I was wrong. It's just that when I know better, I do better. Right. It's an important part of this. And so for me, when I was reading into those documents we talked about, you know, and I can't wait to do, I'm going to acknowledge, I haven't read the let's go there, but I think that that's a, a mantra for any civics teacher. Let's go there. Like, you know, we talked earlier, uh, I, I asked you the question before we got on and I started recording was, do you feel that current events topics are hindering the discussion of civics or are they supporting um the discussion of civic education I'm gonna go and ahead my and answer was say, yes yeah yeah yes <laughs> they are so why don't you go ahead and flesh that out for us a little bit so we can capture that well you know a lot of people are calling the election of 2016 the Sputnik moment for civic education <laughs> where people all of a sudden are like oh what happened to civic education just like people sort of ask that about the stem field after the Sputnik launch right um, and no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, people are asking questions about, you know, we've been focusing on college career, you know, two C's, but what happened to civic life, the original civic mission of schools? So now that there's this focus on the role of civic education, I think 
you know, are these current events a, a help or a hindrance? I say yes, because if you approach that, if you approach this opportunity from a place of fear, yeah, then it's going to be a hindrance. You know, um, I won't mention names, but uh, there is an, a, a person downstate that's responsible for professional development in his region. And we went down there and we engaged with a university partner, engaged kids in looking at an issue that's important to them to take it to civic action. And we said, hey, we would love to do a workshop, you know, with your organization. It's free, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, I want, I, I want to get reelected. I can't let you talk about this thing and get people upset. Mm-hmm, 100%. So, so his perspective was fear, how this might negatively affect me. And I think there are school districts that are like that, where, you know, after the election of 2016, you can't talk about this, do not engage in conversation. They come from a place of fear and how it could hurt them and maybe even hurt kids, right, if it's not done well. Because if you do these deliberations and poorly, it can't have a bad impact on kids. But if you're coming at it a place of faith and you come at it with a, in a place where you have the structure and strategies and the knowledge of how to engage in these things... Um, and you really support these civil deliberations and creating these safe spaces, I think these current events are a wonderful opportunity to right. engage in these conversations, not just in the social studies classroom, but across the disciplines. Yeah. So I think I, it depends on your perspective and your paradigm. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I, I feel like, you know, and let's go there as a title still ringing in my ears, like how perfect. But for me, when after the election of 2016, I was teaching civic civics and um, I had to decide how to open my class. And I didn't want to wade into the water. I didn't want to go in, you know, you're wading into the water. You're like taking a step forward. You're suffering with the cold of the water. And sometimes it's just better to dive in. Um, I reached out to my students on day one. The first thing we did was take out our phones, text five adults outside of the building. What are the biggest issues we face in our, in government today? And we had them text. And then we took those texts um, and took screenshots of them and posted them to a Padlet wall. I can actually share it with you if you want to take a, take a look at it. We had a huge discussion about do we, do we edit out swear words? Um, how much do we redact what people say? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? But then we told them and we got all of their angry uncles and all of their passionate parents, this entire wall of all these beliefs. And we were able to pull so much. I spent almost a week just ripping apart what we brought in and what is fair and how do we talk about controversial topics and how do we respond to people. I was terrified when I did it. I was terrified to tell people about it, but I I just think you've got to get in that messy space. It's messy and hard for us, but it's messy and hard for the kids too. And if you don't clean up some of that anxiety around discussing it, how are our kids going to engage in civics? And and disengaging, the the, the, engaging in a mess is so much more helpful to democracy than disengaging um you know it isn't democracy if our students disengage and that's really kind of like the the touchstone that i go back to when i'm worried about those controversial topics yeah absolutely i mean i am a highly structured teacher i mean i'm i I'm flexible and responsible but i always go in with a game plan right mm-hmm. and i remember um walking in the hallways of my high school west chicago community high school which is over 50 percent latinx right. a lot of students are undocumented And listening to a group of girls before school started teasing one another after the election saying, oh, you're going to be deported now. Right. Like, Like, yeah, exactly. And it was it was said from a place of nervousness. I mean, it was humor to mask some of the fear and questionings and such that they had. 
And so I taught an essentials of topics in modern history class. Um, and this was, it's called essentials because right. all of those kids that have those acronyms, whether they're 504s or IEPs or their right. ELLs, right, are in this class. These kids came in and I dropped the lesson plan. Right. And I said, you know what? What questions do you have about what happened yesterday? Yeah. Like, what are your questions? And I just addressed their questions from an honest place. Yeah. And it was honest. It was one of the best educational experiences of my whole career. Right. And these, and these are the, these are the kids talk about othering that many of my peers think can't have these deep conversations. They don't have Mm -hmm. the background knowledge or whatever it may be to go there. right? Right. So that was a real learning experience for me as well. Um, about letting go and just really following that student inquiry yeah. and that questioning yeah. and such. And those were rich ideas that I could tie back to the curriculum later on as right. well. So well, you brought up, yeah. uh, as you were speaking, I, I thought back to the, when I was doing that activity with my students, you know, and as you're doing your activity, you're talking about these topics. One of the issues I had was that we got pushback from departments across the school saying, oh, the civics classes were having this conversation. They were talking about these controversial topics. And when students were bringing it up to other teachers, they would say, what are you talking about in those classes? So I was fielding internal pressure as the department chair from other departments trying to say, no, this is what we need to do. But um, and, and that's why I believe that we are talking about this right now. And for those listeners who are we're going to be hearing this episode. I'm not just talking to civic education teachers. There's very specific strategies, but civic education principles are best taught when they're across the curriculum. So I believe if you've got um, a, like a family and consumer sciences class and you're talking about measurement, like that's all legislated, right? Like yep. um, measures and weights and the rules for food and all of that, that, that's government. And if you can just simply talk, that's government regulation and, and engage in that discussion. Like you bring this concept of government across the curriculum. I think it's really important that we don't simply rely on teaching civics, civic education principles in government classes, right? And that's where administrators can say, here are these principles that we think are important. Where does it come up in your curriculum, right? Um, and, and the schools that I've seen that really inspire me are the ones where the math department knows, here's these two principles that we're going to discuss within mathematics that, that talk about this. So... Um, I don't know if there's anything you could talk about how we... Well, yeah, I mean, let me go a little bit deeper. It's not yeah. just talking about how legislation impacts those right. those fields, but going back to that report that we talked about, the Republic is still at risk with those four other practices. Mm-hmm. I mean, something embedded in civic education is also social-emotional learning yep. and in school climate. And yep. while I really believe that a robust and relevant social studies curriculum is important, it's really equally important, as you said, Sean, that all educators realize that they're civic educators. I mean, the way you run your school, your classroom, the, the policies that you create yeah. with your practices and policies, all send messages to kids about issues related to power and equity and identity and justice. And these are key to civics. And yeah. those future scientists and poets and mathematicians and engineers and doctors and dancers are all going to be citizens of their communities with rights and responsibilities. And they're going to be impacted, as you said, and they're going to shape public policy. So it's incumbent yeah. on all of us to be intentional in the messages we're sending. Absolutely. Through our and, practices and our pedagogy. Right. When we get to social emotional learning and school climate, when I'm doing a workshop with schools, it's, it's interesting because oftentimes they think we're going to just skip it. Like, oh, those are probably talkers that we're not going to discuss. But 
if social emotional learning, right, is like the experience of the students and the emotional effects of the students, if you don't include them in that discussion for your school policies, then it doesn't make much sense. And when it comes to school climate in general, like you have to be touching base with those students and the decision-making that's going to address those shouldn't be a school, like a teacher's adults only experience. So you're talking about the closest mechanism of democratic government that you have available to you to involve students in is literally running the school. And if you're a public school, that democratic process, you are an institution of government. Your processes are democracy in that sense. The school board is elected and you are agents of the the government. So including them in that is the best possible way to start. And sometimes that conversation opens people's eyes and it's just not something that certain schools are, are seeing. Um, but if you can involve them in that, that's it. That's the beginning of knowing that you can inject yourself into processes. Yeah, I mean, when I do administrator academies and I talk to administrators about the new civic education mandates and the new standards in Illinois, I really get their attention when I talk about how if you implement these standards and these this policy with fidelity, not only are you teaching really great civics, but you're doing, you're meeting social emotional learning competencies. Yeah. You're creating a school climate, right? Yeah. And you're doing restorative justice work, right? Because yeah. restorative justice isn't just about what happens when kids get in trouble. It's the civic right. spaces that you're creating to prevent that from happening. Absolutely. You're also practicing ELA common core standards in an authentic context. Um, And so really giving, and you're doing the Danielson framework. I mean, okay, teachers, let's forget about kids. Let's talk about how you're being evaluated, right? If you're doing it with fidelity, you're doing the Danielson framework as well. So really giving educators that picture. And I just want to go further. Let's say you go into your administration and say, kids should be helping follow the rules, the norms. And your administrator's like, yeah, I'm not picking up what you're laying down. Yeah, exactly. Go back to your classroom and engage kids in creating the norms of conversation and revisit those norms that they created, you know, after you've had a couple of civil dialogues and what's missing and what can we add? And there's great organizations like teaching tolerance and facing history in ourselves that have resources that if you as an educator, you want to start there and I'm not sure how to start, go to facing history, go to teaching tolerance. I'm sure you can mention many more. Oh yeah. They'll help you do this and you can start the movement in your classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And I find when I start the movement in my classroom, when they go to other classrooms, they demand better. You know, when I have civil and um, dialogue in my classroom and then they go to the English classroom where it's a little bit of a hot mess, they're like, wait a minute, point of order. That's a personal attack or wait, point of order. You know, like what, what's your evidence to back up that claim? And the teachers are like, what's going on here? They're policing themselves because they realize that you have to create this safe environment and they demand better. Yeah, absolutely. And but I mean, just just empowering them to stand up and say, wait a second, this is how it should be. Empowering them to raise their voice when they feel like something isn't in keeping with the principles we agree on is a great way to make your class democratized and actionable. You know, I, I always, you know, when I go into a school and they want to do work on personalized learning or, or blended learning where they, they want to give kids control of the learning process. I, my go-to question for administrators before I come to their school is like, what's your policy on how kids go to the bathroom? Like, can a kid, how do you feel about kids getting up, walking out of the room and just going to the bathroom when they want to? And I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but they will literally drop their jaw and be like, absolutely not. I'm like, if you don't want to give the kid the power to say I can go potty, 
Like, how are they going to make, have the power to decide specifically how they learn, how they act, how they produce their work, right? And, and much the same way, like, if you're not going to let students talk about, like, the fairness and, and justice of the systems in our classroom, like, how are we going to teach fairness and justice of the systems in our society? So giving them that voice in the classroom is a really good way to start simply on a day-to-day policy basis injecting some of those principles. I think there's a lot of that out there. Um, you know, I, I want to kind of go back to some of the questions that we had started planning for. Okay. Today, right. So let's go back and let me ask a little bit about you. Like, how did you get so passionate about civic education? Like, where did that begin for you? Um, so I really think it began with my family and my faith tradition, really the idea that we should sort of be a happy camper, you know, sort of meet, leave the campground a little bit better than you found it. Right. Yeah, so right, right. gather the wood, clean it up, you know, make it better for everybody. So I really think, that through my family um, and some of the service we did in our community and also through um, my faith, that that really is an integral part of it. Um, When I went to college, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be when I grew up, Mm -hmm. but I had an opportunity to tutor math for um, adult learners who had disabilities. And I was very good at tutoring math and helping people sort of, you know, um, build their confidence and, and coach them. But I didn't like the math thing. So, um, but I love social studies. I loved history. So that's sort of how I fell into social studies right. education. And then I got a job at West Chicago Community High School teaching under a great department chair. His name was George Strucker, who really gave, and the principal at the time, Al Jones, who really took teacher evaluation and also what you're doing in the classroom very seriously, not just, you know, in your evaluation and assessments, it wasn't just a comment on what you teach, but are you really articulating to the kids why you're teaching it? And they were doing Wiggins and Marzano before Wiggins and Marzano were cool in the nineties. Like I remember going to a workshop with Marzano in the Batavia high school library with 12 other people. Right. 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 Um, So that idea of the what and why, um, why are we teaching it? And really the why we're teaching the social studies is really to instruct the kids on the big question of how should we live together and, and, and embedded in that is sort of this idea of civic education, preparing them, for participation. And I was also assigned a government class to teach. And in that government class, we developed a semester-long simulation that models the legislative process and really engages student voice in choosing issues and researching and deliberating and taking informed action. Um, It's been studied and featured by Diana Hess and Paula McAvoy and their books. Um, And so really being given the permission by my administrators to try creative things, the ability to collaborate with others, really um, got me excited about civic education. And then, of course, I belonged um, to, I had administrators that really encouraged me to do professional development as well. So I got hooked up with organizations like the Constitutional Rights Foundation of the Chicago or Make Such Challenge um, that really, again, coached me and, and gave me resources and connected me with a professional network of practitioners um, to really hone my civic practice. So really starts with family and faith and then sort of stumbling into, oh, I want to be a teacher, but not a math teacher. Nothing against math. My sister's a math teacher. No shade there. Right, right, right. Um, But my, you know, my, my passion is in that civic education. So that's sort of how I got to where I am right now. 
So then let's just kind of boil it down. We talked about like, we're believers, obviously, like we're both giddy with excitement to talk about the topic. But so tell me the benefits to a student who's in a school that has an effective civic education program over one that may not like, um, what are the what are the positives and the upsides? And what's the what's the risk for not having one? Right. So um, another resource for your page probably is already there is that there was a report put out by the the Council of Chief State School Officers the past this past spring, um, and it's an infographic about the marginalization of social studies. And what they shared was really data that shows that um, students who have effective civic education through the social studies are more likely to vote and discuss politics at home. They're four times more likely to volunteer and work on community issues. They're more confident in their ability to speak publicly and communicate with their elected representatives. And even content knowledge makes weak readers better readers. Right. So effective civic education also has implications to success in reading assessments, right? That are so high stakes for many of our schools right now. Right. So that content and context, you know, works. And Nell Duke out of the University of Michigan is doing some great work about talking about the connection between social studies and science inquiry. Right. Success and scores. Um, And if I could just talk more sort of at a personal level about what is gained from civic education, I I kind of alluded briefly that um, my students were able to participate in a longitudinal study that was led by Diana Hess, who's now the Dean of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her colleague Paula Bakavoy, who is now at University of North Carolina. And what they did probably about 10 years ago now is my students, along with students from other schools, engaged in civic education, she kind of did pre and post assessments and longitudinal after they had graduated about the impact of sort of our pedagogy, which embraced the proven practices of civic education, right? Current and controversial issue discussions. We have that semester long simulation. We have informed action opportunities to reach out to allies and also legislators. Um, I, I would also say to you, Sean, that at my school, We do not track for our government or civics class. We believe that if you're going to practice civics in an egalitarian society, then you should practice it in the school. There's no tracking. That's one of the most beautiful things I've heard. It truly is. Like that, that I struggle with those kind of divisions anyway. And when you're talking about civic education to tier them and to provide different levels of learning, I mean, certainly is something that people could talk about, like what those implications are. So that's actually fantastic. I'm yeah, going to share. So what her data shows, so I have research and data to, to right. prove this, right? So Diana came back and said, you know, when you have civic education that is rich and embraces these proven practices and honors student voice and lived experiences, and you have these, these dialogues and deliberations, kids come away with you know, knowledge of the political spectrum, federalism, political forces, the power of civil discourse. I'm just reading a list that she provided. You know, the power and the ability to persuade, lessons about the danger of apathy, the importance of leadership. You know, and Mary Ellen, all of those things when you're speaking are things that involve nuance, right? Like you can't, you can't put up a graphic image of federalism and understand the nuance of federalism. Right. And like getting kids to understand the nuance is important. I believe um, that one of the problems that we have in consuming news right now is that we, we tend to get responses from political pundits that lack 
or that kind of obscure the nuances of understanding of legal, like the legal facts of constitutional law. And getting our kids to understand and grasp that there are nuances and how those can be gained and understood is one really good way to make them able to go out, watch a news broadcast on any network and say, here is the nuance of understanding that helps me to to um, discern and make sense of what this person is saying. So I, that list is fantastic. I don't want to stop you if there's more. Give us. No, what there, I mean, there is more. I mean, if you want to hear it, I mean, like the danger of factions and the power of factions, mm-hmm. how government works, the power of information, right? So news literacy, voting is a responsibility, engaging in these sorts of things. Diana and Paula showed curbed elitism. Or that other, right? Right. It showed kids that evidence matters, whether that be logos, ethos, or pathos, right? Right. That they appreciate the difficulty of the legislative process and actually had more respect for their government officials and what they did and such, right? Right. So, um, and then Brett Levy um, out of uh, New York came back and did another research study with my students about if you do civic education with these proven practices like we do, what impact does it have on open-mindedness? Right. And this is emerging research, but what his research shows is that our students um, had were open to listening and understanding alternative views. They're more open right. to do that. But on the flip side, they were more grounded in their own beliefs and why they believe them, right. which I think is really what we want our kids to do, right? Right. And as you were talking, I, I, I realized that something that we may have, we should probably kind of circle back to is this, like in those earlier reports that we started talking about, the civic mission of schools, guardians of democracy, especially in guardians of democracy, one of the things that was discussed is that um, there was an effect of the legislation of No Child Left Behind as it began to focus on writing and math instruction, that um, there was a decrease in efforts and, and support, financial support for civic education, social studies. And then there's existing evidence about how much the time spent in those classes was shrinking. So there's a, right. a I don't have this specific written down right now. I kind of wish I did write, but there was a, a, a distinct dis, um diminishment of instructional time towards social studies in elementary schools, especially in challenged areas socioeconomically in underperforming school districts where their civic education instruction would shift sometimes in from like 50 minutes a day to 20 or 30 minutes a day. And that has a, and think of the effect of that. If you're diminishing civic education, knowing what we've talked about and what it can do for students, you're taking students in a place that government, where they interact with government and where they can be engaged with government, and you're taking away their understanding of how to engage and interact with that government. I truly believe that civic education is an equity issue, because if we deny people effective understanding of the system and how to engage with it, we deny them the chance to engage with it, right? Here, you're exactly right. So an issue of equity for all students. For those of you who are only going to hear this in audio um, on video, Mary Ellen was just holding up an image that said exactly that. Like it is an equity issue for students to provide them access to democratic processes and a lack of civic education denies them the understanding of how to engage in democracy. So um, comments and thoughts on that? Cause I got fired up and I want to give you. Well, no, um, absolutely. And really, again, our friends on both sides of the spectrum yep. should be concerned about this. I mean, if you believe in small government and people taking individual responsibility for problems in their community, you've got to give kids the knowledge, skills, and dispositions to do that. 
Likewise, if you are um, from maybe the left side of the spectrum and you're looking at social justice and these sorts of issues, it's equally important. This, I mean, you know, one of the questions that you had prepared was what are some of the biggest challenges to civic education today? And I think one of them is the politicization of civic education, that people are trying to manipulate this for their own ends. And no, this is not Mm -hmm. a left or right issue. This is an American issue. This is a a democracy issue here. Um, and, and if I could, you know, I really try to paint this picture to what you were talking about. This analogy seems to help people that maybe aren't in the education game. And sometimes I liken really effective civic education to learning to drive a car, right? Mm-hmm. And I will ask participants, how many of you think it would be a good idea to give kids a driver's license simply for passing a rules of the road test? Right. I even give them individual think time to process and uh, they laugh nervously and they're like, no, that's a bad idea. I'm like, well, why not? Well, what comes out is that driving a car isn't just about passing the rules of the road test, but it's about certain skills and dispositions that have to be acquired in practice. Likewise, why do we think our kids are prepared to participate in our very complex republic simply by passing a constitution test or a citizenship test. Right. It's sort of the things between the lines. You know, as I mentioned, you were talking about the nuances, right? right? It's the things between the lines that really make government, you know, at complex and exciting and relevant to kids. So we have to intentionally, it's not passed down in the cheating pool, you know, right. civic learning and understanding. It has to be intentionally taught and practiced and refined and reflected upon and do it again. Right. Um, it's not a one and done. It's those skills and dispositions. You've got to practice it. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that's really important. One of the uh, reports that they talk about, um, I want to say that it's in the 2011 uh, Guardians of Democracy talks about how even though in 2003 we said here are the practices that we should be using in 2011 and then in the follow-up that comes later we still have the abundance of instruction in social studies that relates to either the delivery of structural factual content about government or we have um, discussions that aren't very open right they're like very structured and guided that don't allow kids to break out into the realities of of government and what those can do so i would really encourage people to dig in those those publications um are ready readily available i'll I'll post them when we post this episode to our website as well uh, to talk about like what is actually happening in your classroom just a, a student discussion on its own can offer so much more if you allow kids like to break out of that and maybe get out into the community and do civic action work. I hope that if there's listeners out there and they want to talk about more, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm Sean McCusker on Twitter. And you are your Twitter handle is? At Daniels underscore M. Okay, perfect. So they can reach out and we will connect you with those examples too. Because like I said, uh, to hear that there's a city where the mayor said, wow, this work has value. I, I always believe like you need to Best civic education is out of your seats and into the streets kind of civic education, whatever that means. And it doesn't have to be uh, like fighting government. It might just be informing them, right? And, and that idea that the very positive pro-social behavior of saying, this is what I perceive to be an issue. I will share my perceptions with you. And there's a, there's a market for that, right? There are people who are clamoring to get that kind of connection to the needs of the people in their community. I think that's really inspiring. One of the things that really helped me have that paradigm shift in my own practice from taking kids beyond being thermostat thermometers who just measure, you know, 
take the temperature, what's going on to being thermostats that can change the temperature, was an article I read that's a classic by Joe Kahn and Joel Westheimer called What Kind of Citizen? Yeah. I mean, when I shared that, I mean, it's a paradigm shifter. And just to sort of paraphrase the article, what Joe and Joel did is they sort of looked at civic education, what we're doing to prepare kids for civic engagement in North America, and they sort of put civic education programs into three buckets. And you're probably aware of this, but the first bucket is programs that are really good at helping kids be personally responsible citizens, which is important, like character counts. If there's garbage in the front lawn, pick it up, right? Recycle, donate to the blood drive, pay your taxes. Um, If there's a food drive during the holiday season, bring in your obligatory can of sauerkraut and yams to it, right? Like teach kids to be personally responsible. And most schools do a pretty good job with that. And that's important for kids like, hey, I have some agency. I can do something on my own here to make a And then they said some schools go a little bit further and help kids be what they say are participatory citizens. They see the power of collaboration. They work together in groups. They form coalitions. They create social networks, maybe with organizations in civil society outside of the school. They partner with the Rotary Club. They partner with maybe the veterans of foreign wars. These are the kids that maybe organize the food drive, right, at the holiday season in Minnesota. But they say where the real rich longitudinal learning happens that you and I are talking about is in the more rare column that I'm saying is getting more and more prevalent, I'm happy to say. And they call this the justice-oriented citizen. And these are the kids, because of the inquiry that's happening in class, because of the questioning and the conversations, and because we're going there in class, these are the kids that in the middle of the food drive step back and say, hey, Sean, you know, like, why do we have to have a food drive in our community? Like what's going on that people are allowed to go hungry. So in that justice oriented citizen column, these are the kids that really look at the root causes of issue and work for systemic change. And I think a really great civic education program does some of the first two columns, personally responsible, you know, participatory citizen. We should probably feed people while we're trying to figure out the root causes and, you know, go for systemic change. So, that article was a real paradigm shifter for me. And as we sort of think about sort of effective civic education, that might be something that really would help people make sense of all of this and where maybe to go with it. Okay, that's fantastic. So we're going to kind of wrap up now. Um, okay. We always end with just three general questions about you so that you can kind of connect, right? So if you're okay. game, I'll go ahead and throw some stuff at you, okay? All right. Your first question, like, tell me the moment from your schooling that is the most meaningful and stands out in your mind Oh my when you goodness. were a student. Gosh, there's so many. Um, I guess it would have to be in community college, actually. I took every history class that Dr. David Hill at McHenry County College offered, and just um, his encouragement and really making the relevance of the what and the why important really sort of made history come alive for me. And then also he had to take an absence during, um, during a final exam, during final exams to like go see his kid play college ball or something. So he actually entrusted me to get out the final exams and sort of be the proxy and sort of the person in class. 
I don't know why, but that I just really felt like empowered and that we had that connect. I had a connection with this guy that I just, you know, admired so much and that he entrusted me with that. Um, I don't know. I, I guess that really, there's many moments, but I guess when I think about a moment where I kind of stood up a little bit straighter, like, and that yeah. I've been seen and appreciated, you know, by a, an educator, that's one of them. Yeah. I, I think when we trust people to do things, it says a lot, right? Yeah. I, I've always, I've often said that the most important thing that we can do for students is to show them that I trust them to learn on their own because that's ultimately what I'm to do. And when, like when a kid makes a suggestion for your class and you drop everything to pursue that suggestion, it changes yeah. the way that kids share in your classroom forever. And, and, you know, when you were, we we're talking, that's kind of what I think of is that feeling when a kid says something and you're like, yes, we're doing that. And they're like, whoa. And they kind of almost don't believe that it's possible. He said, you're going to be in charge. I trust you to handle my final. How cool is that for him to give you that feeling and that sense of like, I don't know, you stand a little taller, right? Okay. And then your favorite, your final question. And this is one that I get of all the feedback I get on the podcast questions like these are the ones that people will like come and send me messages about, but what was your absolute favorite childhood toy? Oh, gee. Um, so my mom made my sister and I, um, a guy down the street made us sort of this custom dollhouse that had two sides to it. And my sister had her side. I had my side, I guess it was a townhouse. And she, you know, collected from around the neighborhood little scraps of wallpaper and carpeting and things like that for this, this dollhouse. And that just meant a lot to me just because of the intention that my mom put into creating it. Right. Um, And it was something that allowed my sister and I to play together and such. Um, So I really, that's my favorite toy. I don't, you know, maybe growing up, I don't know that I would have said that, but reflecting back, just thinking about the heart and the love and the intention and actually the community collaboration to make right. that happen, you know, really is meaningful to me. That's kind of a nice segue to it. Like the community collaboration of your toy, the community collaboration of working together on civic education. That's awesome. So thank you, Mary Ellen, for, um, for being with us today and talking, where can people find more of your work? If they want to access the work that you're doing, where can they find you if they want to reach out? So uh, again, I'm on Twitter at Daniels, D-A-N-E-E-L-S underscore M. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, our website is illinoiscivics.org. And that's going to be undergoing an extreme makeover this summer to be more responsive to practitioner needs. Um, so illinoiscivics.org has my contact information. And that's where a lot of um, my materials are housed. And I also blog like once a week. So if you follow me on Twitter, you can follow the blogging for teachable moments or new strategies or techniques. So the blog and the website, I would say where to go. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. If you're looking for any of the resources mentioned during this episode, you can find them at moderncivicsproject.com or follow the Modern Civics Project on Twitter. My partner, Tom Driscoll, and I regularly post news and resources on the topic of civic education. So We've Been Thinking is sponsored and brought to you by EdTechTeacher and the EdTechTeacher Summer Workshop Series. From Boston to Chicago and San Francisco, the EdTech teacher team will be leading workshops all summer on topics ranging from creativity with G Suite to design thinking and 3D printing to AR and VR and EDU. There's a workshop for every educator. Learn more at edtechteacher.org forward slash summer.